number 168 on the list. This week, we're talking about police accountability. And Troy's tweet went viral, but maybe a bit more than it should have. Hi, I'm Troy. I'm Mac. And we're Speaking Speaking Municipally. Municipally. Welcome back to Speak Municipally, episode 168. Uh, I'm going to take this section off the top to address why there was no show last week. You know, there's a lot of reasons for it, from an unprovoked war in Ukraine, EPS shooting and killing an innocent civilian in their apartment, the province throwing us to the wolves for the best spring ever, and, you know, just a general feeling of hopelessness. But if I'm being honest, the main reason was because last Monday, my cat Addie passed away. It's difficult to put into words, but anyone who had met Addie before knew how special that cat was. He was so intelligent. He was talkative, emotional, and gorgeous. And even when we were all very, very, very low at the start of 2020, something pretty important happened back then. There were so many people in both Edmonton and abroad that got so much joy when he won the Mill Creek presidential election. Uh, not the least of which the people who used it to make fun of me persistently on this podcast (laughs) and abroad. Mac can speak to that. Yeah. There are like very few cats I know who have had such a wide reaching impact as he did. And when he was diagnosed with pancreatic cancer, it was just over a year ago. His prognosis was measured in weeks, but he like fought hard and it was a full year before we ended up saying goodbye. Uh, it seems like, you know, getting that extra time would make it easier. And yeah, I guess maybe it did, but it sure didn't feel that way. And for the past couple of weeks, you know, all I've been wishing for is more time. And that's the one thing that it's not possible to get back. So hug your pets, everyone. Let them do that thing that annoys you, but they love because illness in cats especially sets on very fast. And I didn't know when it would be the last time Addie did any particular thing until it had already happened. So I'll miss you, Addie. Um, And at least here on the podcast, you'll forever be our president. On to the rapid fire. Critics of the Valley Line LRT are doing a victory lap this week after they were proven right about the train. The line, whose west extension was the target of Councillor Tim Cartmel and mayoral candidates Cheryl Watson and Mike Nickel, could be seen running trains downtown with no passengers whatsoever this week. Transed partners who are building the line tried to explain that the line was just undergoing testing and wasn't open to passengers, but they were quickly hushed by former Councillor Scott McKean, who chided them and encouraged them to, quote, tone down the rhetoric. Edmonton has been named the best city in Canada to work from home by PC Mag. The magazine cited affordability, internet speed, and the number of nonstop destinations from the airport as assets in determining the ranking. Said one newly remote worker named Randy, quote, It took a little bit of getting used to. Everything's a bit different at home. You use different tools. But I've gotten used to just dumping canola oil down the drain. Not exactly the same as crude in the water supply, but it feels just like Fort Mac. The Edmonton police officers who joined the Freedom Convoy rally have now been suspended without pay. 
we tried to find out exactly how many officers were suspended due to breaking ranks this way, but the Edmonton Police Service insists it does not maintain a list of people that disagree with them and would not be granting any interviews on the matter. Speaking Municipally is a proud member of the Alberta Podcast Network, locally grown, community supported. And this week you can hear once again from the Edmonton Public School Board. Get ready to take the guesswork out of choosing a school. Go to an Edmonton Public Schools virtual open house. Ask your questions to learn about their schools and programs and find the one that feels right. All from the comfort of home. Find virtual event dates and learn how to make the most out of your online visit at openhouse.epsb.ca. Know before you go and feel confident and excited when you get there. We talked about it recently on the podcast, but uh, the chair of the Edmonton Police Commission, John McDougall, recently published an op-ed in the Edmonton Journal defending the actions of the Edmonton Police Service and how it handled uh, the uh, the trucker convoys that descended upon downtown Edmonton over the last number of weekends. Um, and then recently, there was another op-ed posted uh, or published in the journal by a professor of criminology at the University of Alberta, Temitope Oriola, who pointed out that that's probably not a good thing for the chair of our oversight body to have done. And we're excited to talk to him now to learn a little bit more about that. So welcome to the show, Temitope. Thank you very much for having me, Troy and Mark. We'll start right at the start. Why did you feel it was necessary to write this op-ed after you saw McDougall's article in the journal? Once again, I'm, I'm delighted to be here and um, hello to all the listeners. Uh, well, first of all, I was deeply, deeply concerned because that op-ed demonstrated just a, a rudimentary uh, misunderstanding of the very essence, the very notion of an oversight agency. And as I uh, wrote in the op, uh, my op-ed, oversight agencies or, or civilian uh, oversight of, of uh, the police generally um, is, is a very specific historical development. It is a child of societal trauma. People were traumatized by police abuse. They were traumatized by all kinds of riots. Uh, some of them connected to uh, abuse of power by the police um, in the uh, 1920s, 1930s. And that culminated in the formation of the uh, very first um, civilian oversight agency, the, the DC uh, Metropolitan Police uh, Civilian Review Board, uh, again, formed in 1948. And here in Canada, uh, we have the, the Metropolitan Metropolitan Toronto Police Force Complaints Project Act of 1981, which set up our very first uh, civilian uh, oversight agency. Uh, and therefore, having the chair of um, a civilian oversight agency ride so strongly, almost like the public relations unit of the Edmonton Police Service, was deeply concerning. I felt, and very strongly too, that this was largely just a basic misunderstanding about what their role was. I felt that it didn't seem that they fully comprehend, A, the history of civilian oversight of police, and B, what it was that they ought to be doing, not just as chair of that commission, but as an entity in general. So I want to talk briefly about the setup of the organization, because when we talk about city council, uh, new councillors, they go through councillor school, you know, a two-week crash course in how to be a councillor that's put on by the administration of the city. I imagine there's something comparable for the police commission, but 
if the police service themselves are instructing the police commission on how to do their jobs, I can expect that might be a slippery slope. How how is this service supposed to work? You mentioned briefly that, you know, there was a misunderstanding of roles. Can we dive in a little bit? What is this role supposed to be? And how do we set police commissions up for success or lack of success? So first of all, the police commission uh, or whatever name it is, it is called the civilian oversight agency is intended to be a supervisory agency. It, it is intended to supervise the police. It is a partner with the police, uh, but it is not a co-equal. It is a senior partner. It is the entity that oversees, that superintends the activities of the police. Now, generally, the way oversight agencies have, have worked in a lot of jurisdictions is that until there's some kind of misconduct, you really don't uh, hear or even know that the police commission exists. And, and I think that's uh, totally unfortunate. Uh, and therefore, one of what I've recommended to, to our province in my special advisory role from, from last year uh, is to have um, uh, the police commission uh, actually work in a way that goes beyond the remit of police misconduct. Uh, they should be able to have supervisory roles uh, paying uh, visits, both scheduled and unscheduled visits, to, for instance, uh, spaces of police detention, including police vehicles, holding cells, uh, regular police stations, just to have a look at what is going on. It is intended to be a supervisory role. They were not set up to be bodies or friends. Now, as I noted in the article um, that I wrote, a, a productive tension is uh, embedded in that relationship. And, and therefore, while it does not have to degenerate into uh, adversarial relationships, uh, it, it cannot be one uh, of, of just uh, um, unquestioned uh, loyalty or obedience uh, where no one knows who is actually in charge. The police commission, the civilian oversight agency, is supposed to have supervisory duties over uh, police services. Uh, and therefore, that, that means that both in law and in practice, this too must be there. Uh, in some jurisdictions, uh, in law, the a civilian oversight agency has those supervisory powers, but in practice, it does not exercise them. In some instances, the uh, civilian oversight agency wants to supervise the police, but it is limited uh, by law. So for instance, your recommendations may be subject to being accepted by the police chief. And I, I think that is a strategic error. Uh, now, by their workings, by the uh, micro mechanics of their day-to-day -day operations, police services rarely change from within. That's not my personal opinion. That's what research shows. You need an independent civilian-led oversight agency uh, to ensure that uh, the police are kept on track, that they are kept on toes because of the history uh, of police misconduct and abuse of power. Here in Edmonton, of course, we have a, another body that's involved in all of this, and that is Edmonton City Council, responsible for appointing uh, those civilians to the commission, but also for appointing, according to our bylaws, two city councillors to sit on the commission. Do you think that is wise to have city councillors as members of the police commission? Have you seen anything uh, similar to that or, or different from that in your jurisdictional scan? 
um, as much as possible. You want to ensure that individuals who are part of the commission do not take into cognizance any kinds of political considerations. Now, that is not to criticize or cast aspersions on the current or former uh, councillors on the, the Edmonton Police Commission. I'm just, you know, presenting mm-hmm. uh, what we know from available evidence. My understanding is that the uh, two individuals, the two councillors on the commission, uh, are doing their, their very best in, in in that regard. So I wanted to clear that up. But our peer countries, especially in Northern Europe, are moving towards a model where uh, they try to avoid any kind of involvement by uh, elected. Uh, individuals. Now, there are a few where the oversight agency reports to uh, an elected uh, individual, uh, usually an attorney general, for instance. Um, But there are also jurisdictions where the oversight agency reports directly uh, to the legislative body. Uh, and, and and so it, it's it's in degrees. It, it depends on what jurisdictions you're talking about, but there are various models. And what I did was to uh, distill um, what our peer countries have been doing in their relative success, uh, success in terms of um, low level of reliance on force, little to no use of excessive force, uh, and, and, and so generally those kinds of outcomes that trend in the right direction. Uh, and I find that the more independent, the more removed from uh, politics, uh, the more removed from uh, uh, policing or, or um, military or uh, law enforcement backgrounds of any kind that the civilian oversight agency is, the better the performance. That's that's the, Those are the global best practices in terms of um, what, uh, what works and how it works. So you mentioned that globally, the best practices are to have a fully independent civilian oversight body. And that leads to the most positive outcomes in terms of reduction of force and all the positive outcomes we want. However, many Edmontonians, myself included, feel that what we have in Edmonton, which is a reasonably independent body, a city council and the mayor cannot direct the police, is not working for us. And we saw it in the past couple rounds of protest. We see it with uh, use of force and uh, investigations of police. In many ways, what we have isn't working. And fundamentally, a lot of Edmontonians do not trust in the Edmonton Police Commission to provide adequate oversight. Do you think that's a fair characterization? And if so, what can be done now to actually rebuild trust? Because if this is the best practice... We need to rebuild trust in this system. What steps can we take to get there? Right. Um, so it's, we, we do have a, a work cut out for us um, on, on this point, in part because the way to start a topic is to admit that the issue of civilian oversight of police um, uh, is a becoming uh, rather than a being. Uh, it is a process. It, is, it must always be ongoing and with, with targets and landmarks uh, and clear goals of what needs to be done. Uh, and therefore, there must be measures of success, um, which are very clear in terms of uh, how, in fact, we oversight um, the, the police. More to your question on what can be done uh, on the police commission, I think there needs to be a moment of self-reflection uh, by the board um, in terms of um, what is the stance of the board on that op-ed uh, written by its chair. 
is this uh, a consensual standpoint of the board? If that indeed is a consensus on the board, then I'm sorry, the board is not necessarily fit for purpose. Uh, but if um, there are disagreements uh, in terms of whether this should have been written or not, then that gives us a pedestal from where to start. Um, first of all, um, such an op-ed should never have been written and should probably never be written anymore. And the, the board needs to get to the business of oversighting the police. And that would mean, especially in the, in, in the turbulence of the last three to three and a half weeks, the police chief and, uh, and, and, and the senior lieutenants are called to answer some very tough questions. Again, there's no enmity involved. It's not a war. It's just an engagement as defined by law to ensure that the uh, oversight agency is in fact doing its job. So I would have expected a much more robust public forum, uh, not an overly or excessively moderated discussion where uh, people don't feel like what they, uh, they've said uh, is actually being heard. And certainly the police commission cannot be on the defensive when the police are being criticized by members of society, because in fact, that is the job of the oversight agency. So uh, that has to be recognized. So, And the commission cannot wait until there is a crisis before oversighting the police. It has to be an ongoing living, breathing process, uh, a, a regular engagement to look at what can we do better, what is going on. Uh, so for instance, uh, that shooting involving the armed robbery suspect uh, in which um, uh, uh, you know, somebody was in their apartment in, in the basement of a building uh, and got shot. Uh, that ought to be subject uh, of major uh, oversight functions of the commission. The commission cannot simply uh, accept um, whatever explanation they've been given. They can, of course, get a hold of that, but invite the police to come speak with Edmontonians about what happened and what they're doing to ensure that such an incident never repeats itself. So these are regular, incremental, but 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 routine and unspectacular measures that that have to be taken uh, for there to be any autonomous uh, civilian oversight of police. We thank you so much for uh, your comments today and, of course, for writing the op-ed in the journal. Both Mac and I had the same take that you had, and it was very welcomed by us to see that view represented on the same platform that uh, McDougal's op-ed initially featured. So thank you so much for your work on both the Police Act Review and on this file and for talking with us today. Thank you very much. It was really lovely to speak with you both. Do you have anything you want to share or plug or let the listeners know to look into? Stay engaged. Um, that is important, uh, especially with respect to uh, civilian oversight uh, of police. Much of what counts as police problems are, in fact, oversight problems uh, because um, there's, there's no real... Uh, independent supervision going on. Uh, that's um, unfortunately why we have some of the outcomes that we have. And yeah. therefore, when that terrain changes and with an actively engaged citizenry, uh, we can begin to see tremendous changes that ensure uh, um, the safety of officers and the public. The big piece of news this last week, if you follow me on Twitter, 
I think you probably heard about this, was the code of conduct complaint against Councillor Michael Jans by the Edmonton Police Association. This code of conduct complaint was levied back in January, but the Integrity Commissioner has finally ruled and it all came to surface this week. Yeah, Tapri broke the story this week that uh, the Edmonton Police Association and and uh, Staff Sergeant Michael Elliott, who's the president of the EPA, filed the complaint, as you said, early in January. They alleged that Councillor Michael Jans made a series of social media posts that violated council's code of conduct and left it up to the integrity commissioner to decide what to do about it. There were 24 tweets cited in this complaint. Jamie Pytel, who is Edmonton's integrity commissioner, assessed each one and found that Michael Jans did not breach the code with any of them. And she said that on balance, they were about expressing an opinion on a topic of public interest. And she said that uh, a counselor like Michael Jans should be allowed to have an opinion about these things. So that was entirely dismissed. And and Michael Jans was quick to point out that uh, not only was this a complaint filed about social media, which we've had happen in the past, to him, it felt like intimidation. And he said that he believes the complaint was filed in retaliation for his questions and concerns he's raised at council and in the public about police spending in the past. And now it can't be understated just how trash this complaint was. Like, it was very poorly and sloppily put together and was clearly vexatious. The tweets in question, they couldn't even be bothered to screenshot the tweets properly, crop them, put them in file folders. It was just a series of phone screenshots, inclusive of the Wi-Fi signal status and the power bar and a bunch of other miscellaneous tweets that are also in the vertical space. It was very shoddily done. Clearly, it was written as, we don't like this counselor. Let's say what we don't like about him and let's get an intern to go with their phone for 20 minutes and just get Michael Jan's Twitter feed for the last month and a half. I agree. It did not seem like it was something they had planned far in advance or had been tracking over time and and finally had had enough and then came to the decision that they were going to file a complaint. It definitely felt a little more hastily put together than that. This code of conduct complaint, I would say, is just the latest in a series of sort of tweets and complaints and words back and forth between uh, Elliot and Jan. So in, an, in a recent interview uh, in the City Center Magpie, which is a McEwen journalism newspaper, Michael Jans, you know, accused Elliot of basically attacking counselors on Twitter, tagging them in posts about the safety of public transit because he's upset about council's decision last year during the budget to increase their budget by, you know, only a million rather than the 11 million that they want or taken away the 11 million that would have gotten otherwise. So they've had this sort of war of words back and forth about this. And at council last week, actually, when this issue came up and they were talking about transit safety, Michael Jans said, quote, it feels really gross. And he talked about being subject to almost daily Twitter posts, Instagram posts from Michael Elliott, you know, tagging them, pointing out horrific things happening along the LRT line. Jans is basically saying that they're doing that. Elliott is doing that because they want the money back that council took away from them. What I take from the EPA is that at least Michael Elliott feels like Michael Jans has not just been being critical of the police, but has been doing that in a way that goes beyond what's required of him as a city councillor. Now, clearly, the integrity commissioner did not agree. And I should say that we don't know exactly what Michael Elliott and the Edmonton Police Association think about this ruling and what has happened because they haven't spoken to anyone about it. Yeah, in fact, when this broke, and we'll talk about the uh, 
public backlash in just a moment uh, was large. The president of the police association who filed this complaint was on vacation and couldn't be bothered to comment nor come back nor take a couple hours to deal with any of the media requests for the massive fallout of his complaint. We got an office out of office reply when we reached out to him and uh, it said that he would not be available. And so we reached out to the vice president of the police association, Troy Forrester. Very regrettable that he shares a first name with me. <laughs> and, uh, and Troy Forrester told us that this was not a matter for him to discuss. It was something for Elliot to respond to. Jan said for his part that he will continue to ask tough questions about police expenditures. And he also mentioned police misconduct and their commitment to anti-racism. And he declined an invitation to meet with uh, Michael Elliott. Uh, we'll see following uh, Elliott's statement next week if the two are able to come together as the integrity commissioner encouraged. She encouraged restorative steps to be taken to prevent future complaints or investigations. Okay, I said I was done on this, but I have to, because I heard on the CBC when Michael Jans was doing an interview on this, and the CBC reporter asked him the same question of, well, why didn't you meet uh, with Michael Elliott? Why did you decline this invite? And I have to say, that strikes me as a very frustrating line of questioning, because Jans was ruled innocent on all 24 counts. Anyone who looks at the complaint can see the vexatious, trivial nature of the complaints. Why would we expect our city councilor to subjugate themselves to additional intimidation and harassment for something that so clearly has no basis in reality? I find it frustrating that the onus is on the city councilor to meet with this person who was filing the vexatious complaint. I would just add, Troy, quickly that I think the integrity commissioner just encourages restorative tep uh, steps, whatever that means. It might not mean a meeting, I suppose. They could write each other apology letters or something, I guess. I'm not sure. But I think what Councillor Jans said in that CBC interview, which is a more important point, is that he's a city councillor. He should not be meeting with police officers. That's why we have a police commission. It does seem like there would be an imbalance of power in that situation. I, I definitely agree with you about what you were saying, subjecting himself to future intimidation. But councillors shouldn't be going and meeting with union heads, you know, there's there's a process that is followed for those kinds of things. So I think his point was good there too. Well, let's get to the broader point. And this is the one that got the most attention because in the complaint, there was one particular line that I gravitated to. And then through my social media amplification, many, many others gravitated to as well. And this was a, in section D of the complaint, the police association president alleges that Michael Jans was in violation of the code for, quote, publicly liking social media posts from known critics of the Edmonton Police Service who are known for misrepresenting facts about the Edmonton Police Service and its members, end quote. I saw that and I thought, that sounds like bad news. I'm going to tweet about this. And as we're recording this, that tweet has over 1,200 retweets, several likes. The impression count is at around 750,000. So I think it's fair to say people saw that tweet. Yes, they did. I was, you've, you've found the trigger point on this story for people. The idea that the police have a list of people that they're paying attention to because they're critical of the police is concerning for a lot of people. I should say at this point that my tweets were in this code of conduct complaint. Michael Jans had either retweeted or liked things that I had said that were commentary about the police and about police expenditures. 
there's lots of other folks, if you spend any time on Twitter, who who regularly criticize the police who were included in this code of conduct complaint and so could be considered to be on the list, so to speak. But I think before we get any further into it, I you know, we should address this idea of a list, Troy, because there is no list. If there's a list, it's in a third airplane, you know? Um. <laughs> there's no written down list that anyone's aware of. Uh, the Edmonton Police Service have since come out because your tweet was so widely shared and uh, and said that they do not maintain a list. They do not surveil people. They felt like they had to defend themselves about this. Yeah, so my comments on this were basically twofold. One is that whether there's a list or no list is honestly a semantic debate. The intent of the complaint is very, very clear. And the intent of the police association complaint was to say that the police association believes that city councillors should be prohibited from engaging with people who the Edmonton Police Service believes are critics of the police. Full stop. That is the text of the complaint. That is the police association's beliefs as codified and submitted to the integrity commissioner. So that's intensely problematic. The second part I have is that, well, in order for them to know someone to be a critic of the police, a list has to exist. Whether or not it's written down or if it's shared in the office around beers or if it's recited in a chanting tone as they prance around a fire pit under a full moon, that's not really at issue. The fact that they have a set of people who are generally understood to be their enemies and they want to dissuade public officials from getting advice and insight from their enemies, that's intensely problematic and needs answering for. I don't know that I would call them enemies, and I also just want to challenge that a little bit. Like, is anyone surprised that I would be included in this list? Like, I regularly tweet things that are critical of the police. It's kind of my job as a journalist to pay attention to a civic agency, one that we spend the vast majority of our budget on. I don't think it's a surprise that people like me or Duncan Kenny or others are on this list. What's so problematic about the police knowing that we regularly are critical of them? Well, the problematic part is that the police association believes that because you have been critical, your opinion is no longer valuable, nor should public officials be able to interact with you. Do you think that because you have raised concerns about the police, you should be discounted and ignored? No. Because the police association does. Yeah, no, absolutely not. And I should also just at this point say, you know, I'm a white guy. I don't really have a lot to fear with the police surveilling me, but I recognize that that's probably not the case for for everyone. One of the things I should mention right here, since we're talking about this idea of paying attention to social media and whether or not, you know, counselors should be able to interact with social media, the integrity commissioner did present a proposed social media policy to counsel a year ago. And the previous city council decided unanimously against pursuing that any further. They have now, since this new council, reconstituted their committee that's going to look at the code of conduct. They're going to look at potential changes to how the code of conduct bylaws is worded and and the things that are in it. And they may also consider a social media policy. I don't think they're going to go so far as to say you can't interact with these folks on social media because... I think what we got in this ruling from Pytel is that it's perfectly fine and actually is part of the job for somebody like Michael Jans to be 
engaging on any, uh, on a matter of public interest, such as the police and how we spend our money on the police. Whether or not you agree with uh, my tweet and think it should have gotten as much attention, Mac, you clearly do not. Um, but <laughs> no, no, no. Let, let me address that very quickly. I'm glad your tweet got attention. I have no issue with the fact that you posted that. I think you highlighted an important thing that should be discussed. I think there are some people who did not stop and think critically about your tweet and jumped to conclusions and then perpetuated that even further. And, you know, before long, it was what, probably 10 seconds. And then everyone is like, where's the list? Without actually thinking like, is there a list? Like, what are we talking about? What do, what do you mean the list, right? People just wanted to know if they were on the list. It's one of those things where it's like, how many of the people that uh, retweeted that tweet of yours or like that tweet of yours or whatever, just clicked, yeah, do it anyway, when Twitter prompted them and said, do you want to read the article first? You know, fair. I don't I don't think there was as much critical thinking about that as I would have liked to have seen. But that aside, I don't think it's wrong of you to point out that the police are clearly, you know, paying attention to people who are critical of them. And as you as you as you say, not just paying attention, but think that people like Michael Jan should not be allowed to interact with them on social media. So let me pose a question to you, Mac. If you are a Edmonton City Council who the bulk of you have indicated in your election platforms that you wish to either freeze police funding or add additional scrutiny to the police. And you're existing in a climate where in the past month, Edmonton Police Service has ignored convoy protests and refused to enforce injunctions uh, for several weeks. You've had Edmonton Police Service kill two people on city streets, one of them an innocent bystander in their own apartment. You've had Edmonton Police Association file code of conduct complaints directly harassing and intimidating members of council for pretty vexatious things. And you've had the chair of the police commission publish an op-ed essentially saying the police commission is 100% behind the police and thinks the police is doing a great job before the public hearing on the police behavior begins. If I'm looking at that and then we cap it all off with Troy's massively viral tweet that gets basically the entire city and the broader country <laughs> behind the idea there's this Stalin-esque list from the Edmonton Police Service. And by the way, the Edmonton Police Service has done surveillance on its critics before. Carrie Diot was targeted in a sting operation by the Edmonton Police because he was critical of them. So not outlandish. You have all of these things teed up. Do you think if you're a member of the 13-member city council, you use this opportunity to say absolutely nothing at all about police accountability because that's what our council did. Well, and I think this gets to what Temetope was talking to us about, right? This challenge of how to hold the police accountable and which body should be doing that. And it would seem to me that they skipped how to hold the police accountable day during city council school because nobody seems not only willing, as you point out, to ask those questions or say what needs to be said, it's almost like they don't even know whether they should or how they should go about doing it. And it's a, it's a huge problem, absolutely. And I think one of the reasons that your tweet and the discussion this week following the Code of Conduct complaint took off the way that it did is because people are frustrated that they're not seeing any accountability of the police. And one of the smallest, simplest ways that they can try to contribute to holding them accountable is to use these democratized means of information distribution that we call Twitter and social media and post something about it and express that they are unhappy with the way things are going. And to, to try and counterbalance the dismissive nature that Chief Dale McPhee talks about social media with, right? 
So I, I think it is really about accountability at the end of the day. And that's what people are looking for here. When you get right down to it, yeah, maybe some people are curious whether they're on the list or not. But more to the point, they're concerned that nobody is holding the police accountable for all of the things that you mentioned. We don't have to talk about this purely academically. You need not look further than Lethbridge and Shannon Phillips for examples of police harassing, surveilling, and otherwise intimidating public officials, in that case, a member of the Legislative Assembly. Yeah, and of course, across the United States, there's lots more evidence of this, right? Police services using powers that are granted to them and uh, maintaining lists of people and going a lot further than simply looking at their social media accounts. All right, that's a lot about the list, Troy. You and I are both on the list, clearly. I'm not. I'm not, Mac. Oh, well, you are now. (laughs) Fair. (laughs) You are now. What I was going to say is we got nothing on Tom Engel, defense lawyer (laughs) who's been on that list since before there was internet, probably. Tom Engel, who, by the way, has successfully sued the Edmonton Police Association for defamation. I don't know about you, but if I was named in a complaint as someone known to be spreading misinformation, sounds a lot like defamation to me. Yeah, well, if it ever gets to that, I'm calling you, Tom, okay? (laughs) We're running a bit long, but we have one last thing that we would be remiss not to mention, and that is it is now officially in the province of Alberta, the best spring ever, and coming with that is the repeal of the mask mandate in the province of Alberta, but not in the city of Edmonton, at least maybe not until March 8th. Right. Uh, City Council has called a meeting for 1.30 p.m. on March 8th, where they will discuss Edmonton's temporary mandatory face coverings bylaw. They have a survey that is open right now online if you want to fill it out. They've indicated that that will be open until March 7th, and it'll be used to inform Council's debate on March 8th, which is something we should remember, Troy, for the future. Every single time administration says they need time to organize the public engagement activities or whatever nonsense goes on, because clearly they can turn it around in a day. We will find out what city council is going to do. You and I were talking before the show that it seems likely to us that they're going to end Edmonton's mask bylaw one way or another. Yeah. I think that's the most likely outcome. Of course, the specter hanging over all of this is Jason Kenney has indicated that he plans to immediately, his words, introduce legislation to amend the Municipal Government Act to prohibit cities from adding bylaws that override the province on matters of public health. Uh, Of course, many have said this seems like an overreach. This seems like pretty broad implications. We heard from Alberta municipalities that they were absolutely upset with the lack of consultation, the lack of uh, forethought, and the lack of integration with city policy and planning. And this seemed like a massive overstep. And we also saw, in an uncharacteristic change of pace, very strong words from Amarjeet Sohi. Yeah, Amarjeet Sohi was one of the people calling it an overreach. And uh, it followed uh, just a few days after the budget. So the provincial budget was released last week. And of all of the things that Edmonton asked for, we got $5 million for downtown revitalization, same as Calgary. Mayor Sohi was very upset about this. He called it a slap in the face. And so there was two things in quick succession with the provincial budget and then on March 1st, the the provincial mask mandate going away and lots of discussion about how Edmonton was standing alone here with the only place left having a, a mask bylaw where the mayor came out quite strongly and did not sound like the mayor you spoke about, I think, our last episode. What was your take on that? 
I mean, maybe he listened to the podcast and took my words to heart. I think more probably there was just a breaking point. He was searching for something. Perhaps it was funding for people experiencing houselessness. Perhaps it was a slate of things. I don't know. But I think somewhere in his office, he reached a piece of political calculus that says, okay, the collaborative work is not working. Some goal that I have has now failed. It's time to take gloves off and start fighting. That's my best take on it. Of course, we haven't seen any sort of material action from this. Uh, There hasn't been any motions made in council yet. Nothing other than strong words, but strong words are a start. So that is the one question mark that will be in my head for March 8th at 1.30 when city council talks about the mask mandate. Because I do not know how much this debate is about masks. Perhaps some councillors might take it as a political stand of ground. The last stand against Jason Kenney. They can say, Jason Kenney, if you want to take our mask bylaw, if you want to have government overreach, come and take it. Because provincial legislation takes time. In order for Jason Kenney to force this issue, uh, he's got to table the legislation. It's got to pass third readings. It's got to go to the lieutenant governor for signing. It's got to receive royal assent. And even then, at that point, he probably has to sue the municipality to say, oh, no, no, this bylaw is illegal. Mm -hmm. So that all takes time. That's an intracted battle that he probably doesn't want to fight when he is simultaneously trying to win a leadership vote. The two timelines are going to line up pretty quick. Of course, city council would then, you know, maybe take some licks because a lot of people do want the mask mandate to end. But if the mask mandate continues, I can see that being a reason, the sort of like last stand of Albertan municipalities against a provincial government that really is just rooting for them to fail. Yeah, there are some city councillors like Andrew Knack who seem very frustrated with the province and have been frustrated in the past, but maybe have reached their breaking point. So it's possible. I think what's more likely is city council is going to repeal the mask bylaw or deactivate it in some way, maybe not immediately, but pretty soon. And Jason Kenney's going to back down from his threat to go and change the MGA. And both of them are going to be allowed to save face because council will be able to say, look, Jason Kenney forced us to. And Jason Kenney can say, well, we don't have to anymore because Edmonton was the only ones with the mask bylaw and they've now rescinded it. So we no longer need to make this change. I think I can predict one thing that is definitely going to happen. If it is the case where the mask bylaw gets repealed, I can guarantee you we will hear some impassioned speech from every city councillor arguing why the mask bylaw is a good idea before they promptly vote to remove it. (laughs) I think that will happen. I don't have a solid transition, but we've got an ad for you. This episode is brought to you by the Well Endowed podcast from the Edmonton Community Foundation. It's hosted by Andrew Paul and Elizabeth Bonkink and produced by Lisa Pruden. The podcast explores the impact of passionate people who are working to make Edmonton a strong, vibrant city to live in. The ECF helps people create endowment funds. The podcast tells the stories of how those endowments intersect with the community. Episode 116 explores the Moskers Film Festival's journey in challenging stereotypes and misconceptions about Muslims. You can find that episode and the rest of the Well Endowed podcast wherever you get your podcasts like this one or on the web at thewellendowedpodcast.com. And that's all for this week. See you next week, I guess. Can I still promise that? Will there be a world here when we come back next week? I suppose the only way to find out is to pass those seven days. Until next week, I'm Troy. I'm Mac. And I'm Tanito. And we're... 
Speaking Municipally. Speaking municipally.